0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity, so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you're um, in the room, uh, there should be one below the seat in front of you, or if you're at home, maybe watching us online um, and have one nearby, or if you have a device and want to follow along that way, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 24 this morning. What I want to do is just read a portion of the Scripture we're going to be exploring, and then pray for us, and then jump in and unpack some things this morning together. So, I'm actually going to be reading uh, from verses 12 through 17 of Acts chapter 9. This is the word of the Lord. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Father God, even as we just prayed together as a church through that song, that we desire to hear your voice. We're hanging on your every word by your Spirit. We can pause for a moment to praise you that you have spoken to us and that your Holy Spirit has inspired the Holy Scriptures, that we might hear your word and that we might know you, that we might come to know of Christ, to be saved, transformed, given hope, know your love. So thank you. Thank you that you have spoken. And now as we come this morning to your word, To think deeply about the Spirit of God, I pray that you would once again come and move in this moment to draw our hearts and our minds towards the truth of your word, Spirit that you would move to elevate the truth of Christ for us. God, I'm reminded of the sacredness of this moment. We live lives where we are constantly called to think about the next thing, the next moment, in a world of rapid pace, and yet to have the space for a few moments to come before your word, to study it together, to proclaim it, is a sacred act. And so I pray over this moment that you would slow us down in both heart and mind. Help us to notice what you're doing by your word in our hearts. Help us to see and experience afresh your spirit that our faith in Christ might deepen, that our love for him might grow, that we would become more like him. Spirit, like we just said, would you breathe afresh on our hearts? May your fire stir us this morning to the glory of Jesus and to God the Father. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Seems like a pretty straightforward sentence, right? If you're just joining us, uh, the last few weeks we've been studying together in a series that we've called Essentials, looking at some of the core truths that we believe as Christians. And the way we've been going about doing that is kind of working through one of the earliest creeds from the church known as the Apostles' Creed, which is just a summary of the core things that we believe as Christians. It's kind of a summary of the truths of Scripture to kind of gather them up and say, this is what's essential to being a Christian. And we've been working through some of those truths. And today we come to one of the key lines in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Now that can seem like a pretty straightforward statement until you ask the question well, what does it mean to believe in the Holy Spirit? What do you actually believe? Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? What is it in particular about the Holy Spirit that we actually believe as Christians? Now, when you start to ask those questions, that's where things get a little bit tricky because frankly, there's a lot of confusion oftentimes when it comes to the truth of the Holy Spirit. Worse, not only is there confusion and discussion, if you look back in church history, there's even at times division and accusation about truths of the Holy Spirit and what it is we actually believe. And oftentimes this leaves us as Christians, in us as churches, in kind of a what do we do with that whole Holy Spirit thing? Professor Michael Bird, I think, in his book, What Christians Ought to Believe, gives a helpful diagnosis of the problem. Often that kind of comes when you start to talk about what it means to believe in the Spirit. He writes this, he says, These days, the Holy Spirit has been more a topic of theological conflict than a source for spiritual renewal. I must confess that I am habitually mortified when I learn about many of the unorthodox things that professing Christians believe about the Spirit. I say with no exaggeration that I have met Christians who seem to think of the Holy Spirit as something like Jesus' vapor trail, or a mysterious and impersonal force that conveys God's presence, or even a kind of heavenly buzz that falls on people when some funky psychedelic worship music is played. The way some people describe the Holy Spirit could just as well describe magnetism, mood rings, or Motown records from the 1960s. Then there are other churches that are positively petrified of anything to do with the Holy Spirit, lest they themselves get too enthusiastic in their faith that they might start dancing in the aisles or begin muttering or maybe even raising their hands. In some places, this has kind of led to a don't ask, don't tell policy. When it comes to one's experience of the Holy Spirit, that is catastrophic on so many levels. Because if you don't have the Spirit, then you don't have Christ. And we need the Spirit like we need air in our lungs. I have to confess that I resonate a lot with bird sentiment here. And have seen even in my own life the reality and tension that exists concerning the Spirit. I've been in churches where the Spirit is hardly ever even mentioned or talked about. And I've been in communities and churches where if there weren't certain spectacular manifestations, then they weren't even sure if you actually had the Holy Spirit. And that can lead to a lot of confusion when it comes to what it means to believe in the Holy Spirit. So what Is it that we actually believe? And how do we even begin to navigate this? I mean, there's no way in one sermon I can deal with all the reality of the Holy Spirit and what it means to believe in Him. But I think there's another question that we can ask that relates, that can actually help us navigate a path forward in what it means to believe in the Holy Spirit. And it's this question. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Now, that's an interesting question. When you ask that question, you're not asking if the Holy Spirit is something you believe abstractly, but if it's something you believe and have received personally. And that causes us to begin to think about how we understand the Holy Spirit, who He is and what He does in a different way. Because if we don't understand how we have this Holy Spirit, then we probably don't understand the Spirit Himself Which means that it can be hard to confess that I believe in the Holy Spirit. So do you have the Holy Spirit? To answer that question, we're going to look at this story from Acts chapter 8 that I think gives us a great picture of what it looks like to have the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, kind of unearth some of the key realities of what it means to have and believe in the Holy Spirit. Let me just give you a little bit of context for the story we're going to engage with in Acts chapter 8. Acts begins with the risen Jesus standing before his disciples and sending them out on mission. He gives them a very straightforward call. But you will receive power, Acts 1-8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This serves not only as the command and call of Jesus, but it actually ends up serving as kind of the thesis statement of the book of Acts, which is an account of the early church's work written by one of the early Christians, a physician named Luke. And Luke outlines the book around that call from Jesus. The first seven chapters of Acts focus on the mission and ministry of the church in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 then move the church in its ministry and work in its surrounding communities, which was Judea and Samaria, which we'll talk about in a second. And then Acts 13 onward, you see the mission that that brings the gospel to all peoples in the Roman Empire. So our story is found in kind of the expansion of the gospel from Jerusalem into one of the neighboring areas, the area of Samaria. And if you read the first part of Acts chapter 8... What you see is one of the early deacons of the church, a man named Philip, because of persecution, ends up going to Samaria and begins to proclaim the gospel there. And God begins, as he goes about, spreading the good news of Jesus, that he is in fact the promised king, Messiah, that he has died for the sins of all people and that he has risen again, ushering in God's new kingdom. As he goes to proclaim that good news, God begins to do some incredible things through him. Actually, if you pick up our story in verse 6, you can see this. It says, I'm sorry, verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So the gospel begins to break out through Philip's preaching and ministry, and God begins to work in a pretty powerful and spectacular way. And as that happens, in verse 9, we're going to be interested, we're going to be introduced, I'm sorry, to a certain influential member of the Samaritan city and society, a man named Simon. And Simon, in some ways, is kind of going to be one of the key players in our story today. And it's through this interaction with Simon and this work of the Spirit that God is doing that we can actually begin to look and analyze how does the Holy Spirit move? Who is he? What does he do? Through a series of contrasts that Luke is going to give us. And we're going to kind of work through each of these scenes one at a time and kind of draw out the contrast that I think Luke presents for us to help us think more deeply about what it means to have the Holy Spirit. So look with me at verse 9. Let's pick up our story. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. Note that word amazed, just keep it in your brain for a second, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because, for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. So Simon is this kind of—he's like one of the early influencers in Samaria, and he's looked to in some and some sense as a celebrity. He's put either as close to God or is a God himself. Why? Because he practices magic, and that word in a sense, captures the same idea that he practiced some sort of incantations, rituals, things that seemed to control some sort of supernatural powers that were beyond himself. And he apparently was effective at it because the people were amazed by it so much that they elevated him to this status. The text notes twice that they were amazed by Simon. But then Philip shows up on the scene. And Philip begins to proclaim the gospel. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Philip shows up. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. As we saw earlier, God's working through his ministry in a powerful way. So much so that this is crazy. Look at verse 13. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So the one who was amazing people suddenly encounters Philip, the message of the gospel, the way God's working through Philip, and he's amazed. And our first contrast in relationship to Simon and the work of the Spirit is introduced. And it raises the question, what is authentic power when it comes to the Holy Spirit? Remember, one of the things that Jesus had promised his disciples that would happen when they received the Spirit is that they would receive power to be his witnesses. That the Spirit would endow something in the life of the disciple and through the life of the disciple that could be noted as spiritual power. Yet, as the gospel comes to Samaria, we now have this man who also seemed to practice spiritual power. He also seemed to have some ability to work beyond himself to even amaze people. And yet, he's amazed by the power of God. What Luke wants you to see from the very beginning of this story is that the power of the Holy Spirit is actually greater than any other spiritual power. That's the truth. That the Holy Spirit, the true Holy Spirit, carries with it an authentic power that is greater than any spiritual power in the world. Why? Why does he want you to see that and why is that important? Well, because. The Holy Spirit is not some aspect of God, but the Holy Spirit is in fact God and therefore has the power of God because that's who he is. I mean, Luke's already unfurled this in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira who lie to the Holy Spirit and Peter says, why did you lie to God? So he's already, Luke's already assumed the divinity of the Spirit. Now as the gospel moves forth and you have this contrast of power that's happening in Samaria, what Luke wants to draw to your attention is, this is the Spirit of God at work. And the power that the Spirit has is greater than any earthly power. Why? Because the Spirit is God. So when we come to say, I believe in the Holy Spirit... What we need to be reminded of is we're not saying I believe in some sort of force or aspect of God, but I actually believe that He is God. Christians have always held this as central to their faith. One great example of this, the Heidelberg Catechism, which was a uh, series of questions and answers that was written during the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century to help train disciples in the truth of Christianity expounds on the Apostles' Creed, and when it gets to this line, and the question is, what do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? The first part of the answer given is this. First, the Spirit with the Father and the Son is eternal God. Now, I don't have time to expound on all the reality of the Trinity, but the truth is God is three persons. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the spirit is not a force, it's a person, the third person of the Godhead. And because the Holy Spirit is eternal God and contains within himself the essence of all that is God, his power is greater than any other spiritual entity and any other worldly power. Simon produces things that are amazing, but the spirit produces things that are even more amazing. But again, the question you have to ask is, how do I discern? How are these, I mean, these crowds, you can see them easily manipulated. Like, Simon was pretty amazing. So how do I know that's, he's not God, and this work from Philip is, because this is amazing, but it's even more amazing. And I think the text wants to highlight the reality of this contrast to help us see what true, authentic spiritual power is as it comes from or through the person of the Holy Spirit. Notice what marks Philip's ministry as different from Simon's ministry. Verse 12, what does Philip come proclaiming? The good news of the kingdom of God and who? The name of Jesus Christ. So the authentic power of the Holy Spirit as it manifests itself in the story points to who? Philip? No. Jesus? Simon, who also wields power to amaze, what does his power point to? Simon. So there's the contrast. True, authentic spiritual power, as it manifests itself in the world, will always point back to Jesus. I mean, isn't this what Jesus said that the Spirit would do? John 16, he says that the Spirit's going to come in the world and the Spirit's going to work. He's going to send a helper and that helper is going to testify about him he's going to glorify Christ. That's the work of the Spirit. And the discernment when you ask the question, do I have the Holy Spirit? The first place you have to ask yourself is, the place in terms of my own spirituality and the way I walk, does that move me towards Christ or away from Christ? That's the discerning line in terms of our own spirits in relationship to the Spirit of God. Right? Because this is essentially what John would tell us in 1 John when he writes to the church there, beloved, don't believe every spirit. Right? There are spirits in the world that have power. Don't, don't fall for the, the, the lie of rationalism and the enlightenment that tells you there's no spiritual power or entity. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. So how do you know the Spirit of God? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, the against Christ, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So the first key to having the Spirit is understanding who he is. He is God and what he does. He comes to glorify Christ and to work to unite us to him and then move through us to bring the good news of Jesus to the world. This is what he's doing in and through Philip. This is the work of the Spirit. You see, the reality is there's a lot of people who claim spiritual power and spiritual authority in our world. I mean, just do a TikTok search or whatever, and you'll find lots of influencers who claim to have some sort of power, some sort of aspect, some sort of secret to unlock the key of your life and to endow power to you. From gurus and spiritual leaders, to prophets and teachers, to self-help guides, to celebrities. I mean, Oprah's built a whole empire on this. And so how are we supposed to discern who actually has power, who actually to be influenced by, who actually aligns with the authentic spirit of Christ? Well, the key is, do they spotlight Jesus and the truth of the gospel? Not just say Jesus, but the truth that he is Lord that he has died for our sins and that he has risen again? Is that what their influence and ministry does? Because an authentic encounter with the Spirit of God and his power will lead us towards that end. It always makes Jesus the end. So that's the starting point when it comes to the Holy Spirit. But then we move on to kind of the next scene, and we see another comparison that arises. Look at verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So news of Philip's ministry reaches back to the church in Jerusalem. And they send two of the top dogs to Samaria to visit the church there and what's happening. Now, why John and Peter come to Jerusalem, what their motive is, we're not sure. Right? We don't know if they're coming with skepticism, like kind of like a, "Uh, is God really working there? Could be. There was a lot of skepticism inherent in the Jewish world towards Samaria anyway. They saw Samaritans essentially as half-breed Jews who had turned from the true worship of God and followed a different way in fact, in Jewish culture, they would refer to Samaritans as Samaritan dogs. They looked down on them ethnically and personally. So it could be skepticism. But Jesus had already transformed that reality through his ministry. He traveled through Samaria. He met the woman at the well in Samaria. He did incredible works in Samaria, right? The gospel was proclaimed there. And he had said that the gospel would go to Samaria. So it's just as valid that they could be going not out of skepticism, but of affirmation. A desiring to say, God's at work, let's welcome them into the church, into the people of God. We don't really know what their motives were, but what we do know is when they get there, they notice something's missing. These people had believed the truth of Jesus. They had been baptized in his name, an outward sign of their submission and surrender to him. And yet when the apostles show up, they find that they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. And the text is very clear. So they pray for them to receive the Spirit, and he comes, and they do. They receive him. Now, this brings up a whole secondary host of questions that I don't want to get too distracted by because I want you to see the contrast with Simon, but it's one of those things that we just got to deal with, and I'm going to deal quickly, and I'm going to try to give you some bullet points, and if you have more questions or want more discussion, I'm happy to talk about it with you. The natural questions that come up in this scene is, how do we receive the Holy Spirit? Does the Spirit come in one stage, or does the Spirit come in two stages? Because what seems to happen here is you have people who believe in Jesus, but have not received the Spirit, and then receive it a second time through the laying on of the hands of the apostles. And some people... Traditions of Christianity have looked at this scene and said, the way we receive the Holy Spirit is actually through two stages. There's conversion, but then there's a second blessing, or some will call it a spirit baptism, that comes at a separate point when you really receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of discussion around Christianity around this. Do we receive the Spirit at conversion in one stage? Does he come in faith in Jesus? Or is there a second stage, a second thing that I have to pursue? And oftentimes that second stage is attached with the gift of tongues, but not always. So the question to get under that question that you have to ask about Acts 8 is, is Acts 8 presented as a unique moment in the work of salvation, or is it presented as a normative moment? meaning this is the way it should always happen. That's the greater question of Acts 8 if you're going to draw theological reality out of it. And I'm going to tell you why I believe it's unique. Okay? Quickly. In the book of Acts, okay, Acts 8 stands in connection with three moments in the book of Acts where we see a two-stage aspect to the work of salvation. Acts 8... Here, as the gospel comes to Samaria, Acts 10, when the gospel first comes to Gentiles through Cornelius, and Acts 19, when the gospel comes through Paul to Ephesus, one of the central cities in the Roman Empire. If you look at all three of those events, which have a two-stage experience, none of them are the same when it comes to the order. In Acts 8 you have people who hear the gospel, believe in faith, are water baptized, then receive the Spirit. We'll call it Spirit baptism, just for sake of clarity. In Acts 10, when it's Cornelius, Peter comes to Cornelius' house, he proclaims the gospel, they believe, they're baptized in the Spirit, then they're baptized in water. So the order is different. When you go to Acts 19... Paul comes, finds people who've been baptized, but they haven't been baptized in Jesus. They've been baptized in the name of John, so it's a different baptism. He corrects them that it isn't about John, it's about Jesus, proclaims the gospel. They believe, are baptized in the name of Jesus, and then receive the Holy Spirit. So if you follow these three movements, you realize the order is not the same. So it's hard to make it normative if it's always different. So then you have to ask the question, well, what's unique about these three scenes, and why does Luke have them, and why would God move in a two-stage way in these places? Where did Jesus say the gospel was going to go? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the nations, or the Gentiles. Now remember, the Jews were a people that didn't love to welcome other people. And so there was a natural skepticism to say, oh, you want to come to faith? you got to come to us. And Jesus is trying to say, no, no, the gospel is going to go out. And he's going to validate the movement of the gospel and the inclusion of all nations in the work of Jesus by uniquely moving in two-stage processes as the gospel advances into those areas. That's why Luke has them there. It's two stages here because the gospel is moving into Samaria, which the Jerusalem church would have been skepticism of. And this is validation to say, no, they're in. And it's two stages when it's in Cornelius' house, because God literally had to give Peter a vision to get Peter to get off his butt and go to Cornelius' house to tell him the gospel. So God's trying to tell him, hey, these guys are in too. And then as the gospel moves into the center of the empire, one of the major cities, God wants to validate, no, it's all nations that are being brought in. So that's why I think it's unique. Two, if you get into the rest of the New Testament, it's very clear that to come to know Jesus is through the work of the Spirit, that the Spirit is connected with conversion. That's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You don't come to faith apart from the Spirit other than these unique moments for God's specific purpose in salvation history. When you trust in Jesus, you receive the Spirit of God as a gift to you. Okay, side discussion done. Sorry we had to go there. Just wanted to clarify. But now come back. Don't get too distracted because I want you to see the comparison that happens with Simon next. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon sees God's incredible work through the apostles, the pouring out of the Spirit, given as a gift to these believers who have trusted in him, but he for some reason doesn't turn towards receiving what God is pouring out, but asks that he could buy it or purchase it. He wants the Spirit, but he wants something more than the Spirit. He wants the power of the Spirit. And that's different than wanting the Spirit. And we see a comparison here between the way the Spirit comes to this community and the way it doesn't come to Simon. And the comparison we see that we have to note as we explore our own question is this that the Spirit is a gift that is received. Not a power or entity to be gained or controlled. That's what Simon wants. What's his motive? He wants the power. He wants the va- he wants the ability. These guys, wait, these guys look better than I do. If I can have what they have, then people will continue to praise me. Because here's the truth. The Holy Spirit is a gift given by God. That's what we see in this scene. And if someone came to you and they gave you an incredible, spectacular gift, like just whatever you've desired, right? They, they just give you, and they give you this awesome gift. And they say, here, I want you to have this. I care about you. Here's a, here's a gift. I don't know what it is. You, you can imagine. It. And your response back to them is, let me pay you for that. That'd be an odd way to respond to someone giving you a gift. That's not normative, right? Like, you don't give your kids gifts at Christmas and expect them to then fork over the money for what you spent. I mean, sometimes I wish that would be the case, but... (laughs) No, that's that's not the reality. So, if somebody gave you a gift and you tried to buy it back, why would you do that? One reason. You want control of the situation. Because to receive a gift is to be put in a place of humility. You don't control at that point. In fact, you probably maybe even sense a sense of obligation, which makes you feel a little, uh. And so the reason you would want to buy a gift is so that you could regain control of the relationship. So Simon sees the Spirit come as a gift, and what's his instinct? Oh, I need to buy that. Because he wants control. He wants the ability to wield the power for his purposes, not God's purposes. You see, he's still in it for himself, not God, not Christ, not the authentic work of the Spirit. The Spirit is received simply out of surrender and receiving what God has given. It is not a power you can control. And so it naturally asks the question, why do you desire the Spirit? Why do you desire Him? Is it to know God or so that you can be elevated? Is it so that Jesus can be brought front and center in your life or so that you can be brought front and center in your life? I've seen many people become entranced with the miraculous, not out of a desire to elevate Jesus, but to elevate themselves. Because if they can wield miracles, if they can wield healings, if they can speak in tongues, if they can do things that are supernatural, then people will look to them. And they become obsessed with pursuit of the supernatural, not out of a desire for Jesus to authenticate their witness, but so they can be elevated within the community. That's what Simon's trying to do. You got to be careful of where your motives are at when it comes to the spirit. The spirit is not a force. He is not a power. He has power, but he is not a power. He is God himself, and to have the spirit is to have God. So why do you want the spirit? Because you want God. Because if you want God, then you'll humble yourself and say, I'll take whatever's necessary and do whatever's necessary. I'll get lower if that means I get more of you. Or do you want you? Because if you want you, then the Spirit just can become a means to make you look better. And that's what it was in Simon. And so we see the comparison of what it looks like to authentically receive the Spirit versus inauthentically. Finally, last scene, verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Peter's response in this moment to Simon is strong. It is strong language. Unless we think Peter's just being a jerk here, I think Peter recognizes the serious error that Simon is making in his response to the Holy Spirit. He knows this isn't a minor issue. But for Simon, this is an issue of his very salvation, his very relationship to God himself, and what it means to actually know and have the Holy Spirit. And what Peter realizes is that in Simon's desire to gain control over the Spirit, his heart has actually been exposed, that he hasn't changed. What evidences Simon in the way that he relates to the Spirit is that he has not surrendered to the Spirit and surrendered to God, but has still kept himself at the center of it all. And so Peter gives him a direct call. Verse 22, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall, or the poison of bitterness, and in the bond Of iniquity or sin. Peter gives Simon an invitation. It's a strong invitation, but an invitation nonetheless. He says, Simon, don't you see? Don't you see this? Your lack of inward change has shown that you haven't actually put your faith in what you say you believe. So repent of this. Turn from your sin. That's all repent means, to turn around. Repent. Turn from your self-idolatry, from putting yourself as the Lord of your life and making the truth of the gospel about how you can be elevated and instead surrender to God. Simon, stop thinking of yourself as God or better or more highly favored than others and start thinking of God and what it means for him to be the Lord of your life. Simon's not beyond the means of God's grace here. No, certainly not. He's just misunderstood it. To believe in Christ and to believe that Jesus is Lord means that I am not Lord, that I don't sit on the throne of my life. But if He is Lord, then He sits on the throne of my life. And to trust in Christ is to turn from ourselves our own glorification, our own self-centered pride, and instead with humility to make Jesus the center of our lives. And so Peter calls him to this. Be released from this poison and this bond. Repent. And look how Simon responds in 24. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. This to me is the saddest verse. In the passage, Simon has the opportunity to have the Spirit. He has the opportunity to experience the power of God in his life. He has the opportunity for salvation. And all he has to do is repent and trust. And he doesn't. Instead of seeking the inward transformation that comes from the gospel, he merely seeks outward conformity so he continued to be elevated at the center of his own ambition. his response is one of religiosity. He doesn't repent. He doesn't confess his sin. He doesn't acknowledge. He doesn't move towards faith. What does he do? Peter, you pray for me. You do it. I have no interest in actually repenting. So will you just do it so that way I can escape? One of the dangers that we have to be careful of when it comes to our relationship and having the Spirit is we can pursue the Spirit through religious conformity. An outward obedience without an inward transformation. But the reality is the Spirit is a gift received only through repentance and faith. The Spirit comes as an act of surrender, not as an act of religious performance. So, go back and ask the question, how do we know that we have the Spirit? When we have the Spirit of God, it results in an inward change. It's a change of heart, of desire, of motive, of pursuit. The goal of life changes. The center of life changes. The very thing we trust in and seek for our lives is different. It's an inward transformation. Does this mean we don't ever sin again? Does this mean that we have to live perfectly? And if we ever sin, that means we don't have the Spirit of God? Certainly not. Look at the whole New Testament. It's all about the work of the Spirit. It's a work of progressive sanctification, God progressively making us holier and more like him, which assumes there will be times where we fail that. If we didn't, then we didn't need the gospel in the first place. But what marks that we have the Spirit is that when we're confronted with the reality of our brokenness and fallenness and sinfulness, like Simon is here, we will turn and come back to God our desire will be different. Our motive will be different. This is why Luther says in the Reformation, one of my favorite lines at the beginning of his 95 Theses, that the life of the Christian is one of repentance, constantly turning away from sin and towards God. That's how you know you have the Spirit. This is why Paul would say that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Inward change. Paul never says the fruit of the Spirit is power, miracles, tongues, serving in church, performing religious duties. That's not what marks the Spirit in your life. What marks the Spirit in your life is an inward transformation where you see the things of God burgeon in your heart. And you walk a path of constantly trusting in the goodness of Jesus' death on your behalf and the reality of the new life that comes in you by the resurrection. Because at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit comes as a gift of God who changes our hearts. To believe in the Holy Spirit is to believe that God has given in the Holy Spirit himself to you to change you from the inside out. That's why Paul would say to the church in Galatia, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and and works miracles among you do so by works of the law, by your religious duty? No, by hearing with faith. So to ask the question, do you have the Holy Spirit, is to ask a question of what you believe, not what you perform. It's the question if you've trusted in Jesus and the good news of the death for your sins and his resurrection. If you've done that, then you've received the Holy Spirit. You don't have to do anything. You simply receive what God has given. If you haven't done that, God invites you to repent, believe the gospel, and receive the Spirit even today. So as we respond to this, I wanted to give you a few moments to just reflect on that question. Do you have the Holy Spirit? He's given us a seal. He comes to assure us of our salvation in Christ. To ask that question is to ask, where is my heart at when it comes to the truth of Jesus and the Lord? And to recognize that you don't have to do anything, but if you trusted in him, you can receive the Spirit and he will flood your life with the light of Jesus. He will work in and through you for the sake of his glory and his kingdom. So I'm gonna invite the band back out. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna put a prayer on the screen that I'm gonna just pray over us. It's kind of a prayer of surrender and invitation. It comes from um, an Anglican catechism. And I think it just gives us some good words for us to think and meditate on for a moment. And we're gonna just gonna give you a few solid minutes to just in your seat reflect on what God's stirring in your heart, what he might be saying to you for a few moments. And then the band will lead us in responding in worship. So let me pray over this, and then we'll spend a few moments before God in our seats. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill the hearts of your faithful people and kindle in me the fire of your love. Direct and rule my heart in all things. Empower me for witness and ministry and daily increase in me your gifts and fruit to the glory of God. The Father, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I invite you to spend a few minutes before the Lord silently now.